politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. And good afternoon. It's KPFK on your radio. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and I'm Michael Benner. We're heard every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock, and uh, gosh, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm so happy that uh, you're able to join us this Tuesday. Another great show for us today. In fact, this is a special show for me in many ways because we're going to talk about meditation and maybe a little about contemplation, if that's different, or introspection, about the art and science of sitting with yourself and why do such a thing? What in the world would be the benefit of sitting with yourself, listening to yourself, talking to yourself, or maybe just sort of a non-attached observing yourself. And that's what we're going to reflect on today. It's such an important, what shall I say, activity in my life. It's made such a difference for me. In fact, I'm going to tell a little story in a few minutes about why that is so. But first, I want to introduce my guest. It's a young woman who I've known for uh, quite a few years maybe 15 years, 20 years, maybe. I'm not sure. We met each other in a class because once you're a student of the perennial philosophy and esoteric philosophy and spirituality, you're always a student. And uh, when you become a teacher, you're even more of a student. And so I think it was inevitable that we would meet. My guest today, Diana Lang, who lives right here in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. And Diana, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Hello, Michael. It's a joy to be here today with you, my old friend. We met with Georgia Lambert at Nature of the Soul. It was a beautiful time to remember we were at the observatory. The Griffith Park Observatory was where we were having that class or right near there. And it was so powerful on those Monday nights. That's right. Listening to this wise woman. It was Monday night class. And uh, gosh, it's got to be 20 years ago. Although I hear myself saying that it's hard to believe. Some of our listeners may know Georgia. She was a guest on this program three or four months ago. And uh, I still sit at her feet and am fascinated by the her, her knowledge and her wisdom, and she regaled us with tales of the rain cloud of knowable things and the possibilities of what we could access if we stood open and receptive to it. And uh, boy, the feedback I got, people just, really? That's just <laughs> a fascinating concept. The nature of the soul really cracked the code for me. You know, if I can say that... Uh, I was trying to read Bailey books, and I had read a number of uh, personal development books that were difficult enough, like Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes or William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. And then the Bailey books were so arcane. 
And Georgie just cracked the code, Lucille Cedar Crown's course, Nature of the Soul. And yet it wasn't dogmatic or strict or, or ritualistic. It was just this wide embrace of all this heart-based information about how we appear to be different and separate and even feel isolated or alienated at times. And yet uh, there's a connection, there's a harmony, a, a, a oneness that I think meditation makes us aware of. So let me begin by asking you about your story, your your backstory of as a young woman or who knows, maybe a little girl, how did you get interested in meditating? Yes, you know, I have a very unusual background in that um, my father is a jazz musician. And so we traveled around the world and I lived in many places for little bits of time and I had a different kind of education, and uh, my father also was an astrologer, is an astrologer, and his mother was. And so I grew up in a, an atmosphere where I was talking about archetypes when I'm four years old, right, or three years old. I knew the planets in the sky before I knew my numbers, you know. So right away, I'm being... I'm thinking about things that little kids often don't. And so by the time I could read, I was reading books, different astrology books and tarot cards or just everything I could get my hands on that was esoteric and metaphysical. And one thing led to another. It was my own interest. And then by the time I am in school, my father uh, helped me make charts and I did all my friends' charts and by seven years old, he was having me build the astrological chart myself, which are logarithms, very complex, takes hours to build a chart by hand. And this before computers, of course. And every single person I ever met or ever knew, I would do their chart. And so, again, I'm looking about, you know, past lives I'm learning about and what you're going to do in this life. And so I'm thinking like that. And so I'm reading, reading, reading. And by the time I'm 13, 14, I'm reading Herman Hesse and Blavatsky and the Bible and the Quran and just everything I could get my hands on. So I had a very impressionistic experience um, of abstract concept, concepts very intensely. And I had these opportunities where I got to meet with certain people, like one and is a radio, famous radio personality named Dr. David Viscott who was a radio psychiatrist, who I got to know. And he, he was my hero at the time. I used to fall asleep listening to him on KABC. And he had this show where he was very intuitive and kind of psychic with people, but, but he was also a, a bona fide psychologist, psychiatrist. And I got to meet him and he kind of mentored me and I'm 16 years old at the time. So I had all through my life mentors, people that came into my life that taught me specifically, particularly. And I feel so lucky because I, I had such an interesting education and also going to Catholic school for some of that time, for a few of you, few years and that from having traveled a lot and not getting a normal education because I would only be in a school for a few months or, you know, not very long. When I got to Catholic school, I was 12 and the nuns saw what my education levels were 
and they caught me up like and because I knew things that nobody knew <laughs> and I didn't know English very well interestingly you know like I didn't know like things like that and so those few years for me at Catholic school were so life-changing for me and I wasn't I was the only kid in the school that wasn't Catholic <laughs> but I was in this Catholic school so it feels like so many steps in my life when I look back were set offered given where this person would come in at exactly the right time and then another and then another and then through all of that um, finally yoga and my first teacher that I worked with Shelly Pizer really opened my mind to meditation proper sitting and meditating but I realized I'd been meditating all along I just didn't know that I was meditating and then I started to see the value of getting your body organized so that you're one of the tenets in yoga is to say the only reason that you do hatha yoga, which is the physical aspect of yoga, is to organize the body systems so that you can hold more light. And I, I loved that concept so much. I know that this is true. And then I had no connection with my body. I was just in my head a lot and in my dreams and my thinking. I used to literally have dreams being taught about time, about death, when I'm seven, eight, nine years old, thinking about these big ideas. And yoga became very practical for me. And so here's my final thought to this long answer. So my goal in life is to teach the practical application of spiritual principle in everyday life. Because that's what I learned, is that this stuff is real. It's a thing that you use like a tool, and it does a very particular thing. And all the ways of meditating of pranayama or, you know, breathing techniques of vipassana or silence and Zen meditation, all the styles are channels that you can dial in, that you can relate to, that we can relate to, whether it be prayer, using a rosary or a mala, in the Hindu tradition, it becomes a way to, to access the God force of the universe. I had no idea that you knew David Viscott. David is a hero of mine. Oh, really? Oh my God. He was, I loved him. He was helped me so much. He taught me so much. And he said to me, you're going to do what I do someday. <laughs> He was right. I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I worked with David at KABC for five or six years. In fact, uh, we could do a whole show about David. Uh, may he rest in peace. He died way too soon. What a gift to humanity. He wrote several books, including The Making of a Psychiatrist. I saw David one day at the radio station before one of his radio programs, do a Reiki healing on one of the engineers there. Now, here's a medical doctor who became a psychiatrist who is doing a Reiki healing on this fellow's back. And I was so impressed by that that a few days later, I pulled him into the newsroom where I was working, and... I knew he had a few minutes before he went on the air, and I asked him about, David, how did you survive medical school? I mean, what is it that allowed you to retain your humanity and indeed your spirituality in spite of this indoctrination into medicine? 
right? Allopathic drugs, surgery, therapeutic. And he told me the most amazing story about when he was a young boy, a, a, a teenager, 12 or 13 years old, he had an awakening experience. And he said that's what got him through medical school. And the only reason he did it was that he wanted to help people on a spiritual level. And he thought that medicine would give him access, credibility, and the authority to do what he wanted to do. To do. But David was so much more than a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. He was an awakened soul. And yet, unless you watched him carefully, you didn't know that. You know, or if you perhaps listened to him on the radio, you might have picked up on that. I remember Saturday Night Live doing a parody, a parody about David. And they were mocking him on Saturday Night Live because he would always say, and then how did you feel? And then how did you feel? He was very much into emotional intelligence before we even knew the term emotional intelligence. But you and I will have to talk about David on another occasion. I had no idea that... Uh, I would love to. I have so many stories about him and just how brilliant he was and how insightful he was. And so many precepts that I still use that were just basic things like to know the difference between your own yes and your own no. Just these basic things that, and, and he was very controversial and not responsible loved in the field of psychology because he he broke all the rules he did things his way and to me he was just an absolute genius and a way ahead of his time and reiki back in those days that was very unusual you know oh especially for a shrink you know just i knew he was special again that's why i pulled him into my office and sat him down and he spent 15 minutes telling me this story about waking up as a teenager, and, and I think that's what you're saying. And uh, Georgia Lambert says the same thing about her early childhood. I do not have those stories. I discovered meditation really after college, shortly after college, through my interest in self-hypnosis and a lot of guided imagery and visualization and affirmation and programming and Little by little, I started listening, which is the other side of the coin, right? And when I think of meditation, for all the value there is in self-talk and affirmation and setting goals and visualizing outcomes and all of that, the listening part, the sitting with yourself and becoming aware that you are not really the self, that you've identified. You're not really those voices in your head that argue with each other. That's really the way I became fascinated with meditation to the point that when my radio career ended uh, in the mid 40s, um, I say the mid 40s, sounds like I'm talking about the 1940s, in my mid, <laughs> when I was in my early 40s, I did a long meditation, like a week long uh, self retreat. What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? And what came up day after day after day after day was teach meditation in some form. Get people meditating, listening to themselves. And so these many years later, I still feel as strongly about it as ever. And that's why I've brought you on today to see if we 
can encourage people to begin a regular practice, even if we feel that we're doing it poorly or awkwardly or, you know, I can't meditate, I can't stop those voices in my head. I mean, uh, how do you help people overcome those initial uh, objections that the ego has to meditating? Right, good question, and that, that's the big one. You know, there's, there's a saying that says, uh, prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening <laughs> to God, right? Or to the, all that is, to pure love, to divine, divine energy. And everyone in these, I've been teaching meditation since 1980, so most of my life, and I've taught tens of thousands of people how to meditate. And without almost any exception, Every student comes to me privately or writes me or texts me or, or pulls me aside and says, I know I'm not doing this right. <laughs> right? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not having the experience you're supposed to experience. And it makes me laugh, you know, because it's such a human thing to say. And, it, and, and we have, it's such an um, elevated, almost fantastical thing of what happens when we meditate. Because there are moments where you have experiences, real experiences of knowing, of understanding, of new understanding, of expansion of consciousness all at once, where you just know something you did not know before. You have access in a way to the universe and everything that ever was and then everything that ever will be. But mainly, <laughs> almost, you know, 99 out of 100 times, it's you're just sitting there. <laughs> with these little moments where where there's illumination. And I think there's too much sometimes, at least in my feeling about it as I've studied it and studied with different teachers, and I've studied with many and read everything in different styles of meditation, there seems to be, to me, too much of a time element to it where more time in a meditation means better meditation and what I've learned is, because I've done that, where I've done two-hour meditations and I meditate for 30 minutes every day in the morning and the night and all kinds of variations of the things because I pretty much have been meditating since ever I started. I don't think I've missed a day. What I realized were those times when you were on an airplane, you know, and you, and you pause to meditate or you're at the airport and you pause to meditate and maybe it's a three-minute meditation that I could have as profound and maybe even more profound of a, an experience in a meditation like that than if I sat there struggling inside of a meditation for a long, long, long time. Not to say that that's not correct either. I mean, that can be wonderful. And, and often you'll just slip into states where it's easy to stay for a long time. But I talk about it as state. It's a state and you're, you're hitting a vibration, a vibrational state and that you can do in a moment. And especially as you've trained yourself in meditation, you can touch that space. And so your whole body has a yes, or your whole body has a no. Your whole body can give you the information of, do I turn left or turn right? Do I, you know, take this job or that job? You know, all of the questions of life are can be answered in a millisecond when you have a trained, tuned instrument. And so... You know, that's the work of the sitting when you're just sitting, that you have an excellent, what I call sit stay <laughs> to the ego mind, that you can sit there and stay and shh, 
right? There's a silence that you you learn how to touch in order that those glimmerings, those illuminations that can happen, that you can know all of the subject in a moment versus thinking about it. Because as soon as we start thinking about it, we're out of the meditation in a way anyway. So those glimmerings become very powerful. I had a teacher that used to say to me, it's not how much time you spend meditating, but how many times. Yes, really good. In practicing my music, I know that if I play five or 10 minutes every day, I'm going to improve as a musician much more quickly than if I sit down once a week for an hour or two. It's not how much time, it's how often. Because it's the relationship. Right, you're building a, a dialogue between your, in, in the case of meditation, your soul and yourself, but the dialogue between music and self, right? The pl- practicing the scales every day creates a dialogue and a familiarity that you start to get used to slipping into state, right? And you're growing even when you're not practicing. Like, even, as I'm a musician as well. And so when you're not practicing, sometimes you're learning as much as when you're sitting there doing the scales like when you come back to it the next day and you come back to it the next day you're just in in improving all the time so i completely agree with that well that's what mindfulness is to me there's like a meditation where you can practice mindfulness but then as your meditation ends you open your eyes and stand up and move out into the world the idea is to carry that mindfulness with you And know that it may not last very long because the frenzy of the world is going to drag you off this way and and distract you over here and overstimulate you in a dozen different ways. But then you can take a breath and recover and find your center again, slow it down, and be the one that monitors that rather than the one that's caught up in it. Exactly. Because after a while, when you have a meditation practice, in uh, it's like you're hooking meditation to meditation to meditation to meditation to the point that, in a way, you're meditating all the time. And I call that awareness. It's just staying aware all the time. And I make a joke that wouldn't you rather have a conscious meditating lawyer than an unconscious non-meditating lawyer or a conscious mother an unconscious, you know, meditator or a conscious business person or, or whatever we are, when we bring that aspect into it, there's, you know, that that person's honest, you know, that person's in service in some way. It's David Visca as a psychiatrist, doctor versus um, just a psychiatrist or a doctor, right? He brings that awareness with him. And when we meditate, we, we're building that capacity of awareness and it becomes that whole life is a meditation. Every conversation is full presence because what meditation teaches is that sit stay is really the essence of presence. Let's talk about that because uh, what you're calling the sit and stay, I, I think of meditation, uh, especially as a beginner, is being a lot like training a puppy to sit and stay. And the puppy really, it's torn because it would much rather be with you and play and it doesn't want to learn to sit still but it does want to please you and you gotta be a good trainer in that where there's there's a certain training and what part of us 
is it that's resistant to meditation? Let's explore that a little bit when we come back. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name's Michael Benner. My guest today, Diana Lang, is the author of uh, Opening to Meditation, and she's been a meditation teacher for many, many years. And that's what we're talking about today, and there's more if you stay with us right after this. KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM all over Southern California. In the Santa Barbara area, you can hear KPFK at 98.7 FM. In northern San Diego on 93.7. And up in the high desert Ridgecrest in China Lake at 99.5 FM. Of course, we live stream on the internet at kpfk.org. And this program is podcast on all platforms and Dreams every week on the website, theagelesswisdom.com, and the T-H-E is part of it. So after that W part, theagelesswisdom.com. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're talking about meditation with Diana Lang, a meditation teacher here in Los Angeles. And uh, Diana, there is, I guess, it's the egoic nature. It's what we call the ego that really does not want us to meditate. And it is so clever in cooking up these excuses and, and these reasons why we're wasting our time and we'll never be any good at it. And you really should be doing something more productive. And I think, <laughs> I'd love your take on this. Sometimes I think the ego is afraid that if we meditate, we'll discover that who we are is much more than the ego, and then it'll lose some kind of power or influence over us. And it's always afraid, and its job is to protect us and cover our back. But we're not in the jungle anymore. We need an ego, but we don't need it like we used to need it. And uh, I think that's where the battle comes from. What's your take on on those voices that argue with us and say, nah, you got better things to do. Yeah, it, the ego. That's the subject, right? You could, we could do 20 shows about that or a thousand shows probably. Uh, we all have one and we need one as as we're in the form, right? And as we're in the form, there's there's a personality and, and the way of us and that is necessary that the ego is connected to the charisma, the, the, the way we do the world and the way this vehicle thinks of us. But the soul is in meditation deep, right? And so there's this relationship, which is what you're correcting with meditation is connecting the soul with the self so that there is this dialogue that can start to happen all the time. Where the ego it pretty much most of the time is in fear of some kind, where to me the soul or our spiritual life is in love, right? And one of the questions I ask my students and people I work with is, you know, what would love do? What would love do? What would love do? Because we know the answer of what fear would do. <laughs> you know, fear wants revenge, fear retaliates, fear wins, you know, fear, you know, fixes the problem. You know, it, it doesn't accept, it doesn't allow for the natural growth of the being and so it's it is a necessary aspect of the life and sit stay <laughs> to get that 
ego self to be still and know. That small voice, right? We hear that phrasing from the, uh, the Bible of that still small voice, right? Is that voice that is that is very quiet. The ego is not very quiet. It is always blasting off and fireworks going on about this thing that could go wrong, this worry that could happen, what someone thinks of us, what we think of them, you know, all of this judgment, 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 reaction, reaction, reaction is sort of ego stuff and the stuff of the ego, right? But when the ego is harnessed to the soul, and that's yoga, the yoking, right? The sun and the moon, the pairs of opposites. When the self and the soul are working together and harnessed, yoked, yoga, this, this ego can be in service to that light versus in competition with it. Many years ago, I interviewed the author of a book called The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. He was a humanities professor named Joseph Chilton Pierce. And he's since passed on. This is easily 40 years ago. But he said something to me about intuition that struck me. And I've always remembered it. He said, intuition are those thoughts that arrive full-blown. The insight and the understanding that occurs to you without having to reason your way to the conclusion. It's just the aha experience of realization, these uh, revelations or epiphany that come upon us as if realized on an entirely other level and then laid out in front of you whole. What is the relationship of intuition as you see it, the relationship of intuition to meditation. Wow, wow. Well, <laughs> where do I start? Well, one thing that happens as a byproduct of meditation is our intuition gets better and better and better and better. And that is a fact. You can literally, and not, you know, and we, so much uh, glamour around ESP, extra sensory perception, right? And all of those qualities of etheric hearing, etheric seeing, right? The third eye, healing through your hands like Reiki, all the ways that are, are, we are modalities of energy transmission increase when we meditate, including and especially intuition. And because you're in a non-mind place or you're in a non-mind-dominated place, right, where the mind keeps winning, where there's not this, this tug of war constantly between logic and knowing, and we start to get feel and begin to trust the difference between knowing something and thinking something are very different things. And one thing, you know, is a joke in metaphysics is don't believe everything you think. <laughs> and that's funny because it's funny because it's true. You know, everybody's got opinions. We all do. I don't listen to my own thinking. I trust my knowings. And those are intuitive. Well, I've gotten to the point where I don't think that's me doing the thinking unless it's deliberate and purposeful. I understand that I can use my 
mental nature, my logic, my imagination, my creativity, to uh, read, to write a to-do list, to make a decision, uh, to chart a course or make a plan, to communicate or improve a relationship. But then when I don't have a task in front of me, and it's just sort of, uh, I call it Miller time, you know, you just sort of kick back and put your feet up and stare out the window. It's like, you don't go unconscious. Your mind continues to chatter away, this monkey mind, this roof brain chatter, according to its own agenda. And that's when it gets really intrusive and and soft and negative and, and, and self-critical. And we believe that that's thinking. We call that thinking. But the older I get, the more I feel like I'm a victim of that chatter. That's <laughs> not really me. I can be the observer of that process. Exactly. There's popcorn, right? Pop, pop, pop. It's just more and more and more. And, you know, there's metaphors all over the place of a hundred monkeys. And, you know, and I call it the parade going by. And can you watch the parade and just go, ooh, trombone players, and ooh, here comes the horses. <laughs> but you're not getting in the parade or trying to direct the parade. You're just observing that parade of thoughts that is very entertaining and constantly engrossing, just kind of like watching uh, television in a way where we're being paid. Uh, the ads are there to, or the media is there to keep you watching so that you will watch the ad, right? So you're giving airtime in a sense to this negative thinking device most of the time, not only because the mind in harness, mind in yoga, the mind in service is, is can be genius, right? But when it's just popcorning, then it's just a bunch of thoughts that are random and disconnected, and each one in its own right can be very um, time consuming and and life consuming because then we're dedicating our lives to something that we think that is it's like trendy or or it's not even what we really believe or know or feel. It's just something we're we're doing. You know, and so it's it's a good thing, I think, like probably the most valuable to me, the most valuable thing a person can do is to even attempt a meditation practice. And what I tell my students is just do five minutes, just sit down for five minutes every day, make yourself do it, whether you think it was good or bad, and you'll mostly think it's bad and just expect that you'll think that and still sit there for five minutes. You're teaching that puppy those that that to sit, stay, and then and then more and more often starts to have, it begins, these bigger things can happen within that. Meanwhile, the whole life is changing. The minute that you meditate, the moment that you start a meditation practice, there's a phenomenon that happens that all those planes in the air of our life, un, undone things, things that are we have regret about or things that we haven't finished or the conversation that we wished we had, you know, to somebody or that's not even has passed on even that we wish we said, I love you. Those planes finally have permission to land in the safe space of the meditation practice and people call out of the blue and you find a letter that you didn't remember that you had and you get a job or an opportunity that just seems to come out of the blue. These things happen when you start to meditate and it happens fast. And I think that, you know, the power of that, right, is part of, it's, it's, it's 
intense <laughs> because your life changes so quickly, so quickly, even though the experience of the meditation is pretty darn ordinary most of the time. My wife, Doreen, says just because the train comes into the station doesn't mean you need to get on board. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so if we're not these intrusive thoughts, which are largely self-critical, negative, and which seem to be accelerated and amplified by stress, the more stimulated we are, the more frenetic and chaotic are these voices in our head, then how do we transition to becoming the observer of that process rather than attempting to ignore or I often hear from people who think they should repress those thoughts. That's, that's futile, isn't it? Right, definitely. Yeah, you, you know, your, your brain is a thinking machine. That's its job. That's what it's supposed to do. But there's, it's a veil, I call it. You know, there's the veil of thought. The things that we, who I am, I'm a woman, I'm this age. I'm, you know, we, we describe ourselves by the exterior of something rather than, the, rather than also, and, and maybe even more deeply, the interior of something. There's, I say that what self-realization is simply realizing the self. And that process of realizing the self, self-acceptance, full self-acceptance, isn't a denial or, of, and, or an unconsciousness. It's a hyper-consciousness. It's a wide awakeness that people that meditate and, and have a practice, you, you'd notice everything. You notice the change in the temperature. You, you notice the colors that the room is painted. You notice what that person's wearing. You notice the vibration between each other in the conversation it becomes it's very surreal and one of the reasons as a young person in the 70s i didn't take drugs <laughs> as everybody i knew did was because everything was already very surreal to me and the last thing i wanted to do was to have more stimulation when to me everything was stimulating you know there was so much to be aware of and i was meditating then already and that was the last thing i wanted was any distortion to that you know you know my approach is sort of backwards i mentioned earlier i think that I started with self-hypnosis and a lot of guided imagery and self-talk and, and affirmation. And then as I began to explore various forms of true meditation, a more, I don't want to say passive, but maybe that is a good word, receptive, kind of sitting quietly, being open. Um, it took me quite a while to discover Vipassana, which is maybe the simplest and most basic place to begin is just watching your breath. And at the time, not having a, a Vipassana teacher uh, and not really knowing what mindfulness was all about, I began to do it without really understanding why. And pretty quickly, I had this remarkable experience of watching this body breathe that wasn't mine. And I realized I'm not the breather, I'm 
This awareness watching this body breathe itself all by itself. It doesn't need my cooperation. And if I can watch my body breathe and be the observer of that process, then maybe I could watch my thoughts and observe my feelings in a way that I wouldn't be so caught up in them and victimized by them. I could just be this. And at the time, I probably would have said detached, but now I would say non-attached because you're not detached. You're very much involved, but you're also not holding on. You're not attached. You're not detached. You're just the observer, right? The way we could watch a sunset without judging it or be entranced by a field of wildflowers without measuring and weighing and quantifying the, <laughs> the, the values or, or looking at a newborn baby and, and being awestruck without analyzing anything. And to live life in that way, I think Vipassana is a great way to begin to do that. Is that where you start with your students watching breath? It's a way. I, I come in a lot of different angles at it because it seems like different people relate to different things, right? And so I offer a, a kind of uh, platter of choices. <laughs> Smorgasbord, poo-poo platter. The poo-poo platter, yes. <laughs> of, because, but breath is, of course, you know, the great thing about the breath is it's always there. So it's your friend, you know, it's yourself, it's, it's your life force, literally. So the breath is where very typically meditation begins to observe the breath. Vipassana is pretty intense for most people. It, it is not for the faint of heart, actually. Um, it is in total silence and there's very little verbal teaching. It is just to watch the breath. And so you're so confronted with the self. And that's good. I mean, it's, the, it's a fast track on it, on that, in that way. But it's also um, it very challenging to most people, I think. Um, but if you dive in the deep end of the pool... <laughs> As your first experience of, of meditation is Vipassana, excellent, which you did, and I'm not surprised about that at all, that you would be attracted to something like that because there's no net with that. Uh, you know, it's just you're all in. You don't have a mantra. You don't have a chant. You don't have a prayer you're saying. You know, it's just the breath, and it's very profound and as, you know, as a practice. I think sometimes it's my background as a journalist that led me into all of this because I've always thought of myself as investigative and wanting to know the truth behind this and what's really going on there and, well, what's the real motive behind this and, you know, exploring and being maybe just a little bit cynical and, uh, you know, looking under this rock and behind that curtain. I began to notice these games that my brain was playing with me or my ego was playing with me. And then I started seeing these patterns. Uh, like one day, for example, I found myself feeling quite defensive and speaking defensively. And when I got quiet, a voice in my head said, who are you defending and why do you believe it needs to be defended? Well, that stopped me cold. Because I didn't know who I was defending, much less why I felt it needed to be defended. Wow. Yes. Because the truth makes you free. 
you know, you're an old soul, Michael, for sure. You know, when you hear truth, it stops you in your tracks. It stops me in my tracks, too. When I hear something true, I collapse. The ego goes, falls down. I, I am, it's, you know how that phrase, the ring of truth, it, it vibrates and reverberates through the whole being when something is true. And if you're open, like you are, you can, it, it, the learning is accelerated because there's no resistance to truth. A lot of times it seems like, you know, we, I think what you said earlier about being a little cynical is good. It's good to question things. You shouldn't blindly anything, right? You have to experience it yourself. And I have never taught anything that I haven't personally experienced. I just will not. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but if I haven't experienced it, I'm not going to talk about it and I'm especially not going to teach it, <laughs> right? So it, when you have those moments when your whole body is thrumming with the ohm of the universe in a moment because some phrase, you know, opened your mind or cleared your mind or made yourself receptive, it is, it is such a powerful way to move through life. What I hear you saying, Diana, is that uh, maybe one of the most wonderful benefits of meditation is to not just know or even understand, but on the highest of levels, experience the unity and the connection that sets you free from this anxiety about not fitting in or feeling somewhat alienated or people don't understand me or gosh, I feel awkward in this social situation. What should I do? A quality of truth that says just be who you are and the more you know about yourself and understand the truth of who you are, the less anything else matters. And, and, and I think initially I was afraid, well, that would make me pompous and conceited, and then nobody would like me. I'd be so full of myself, but quite the contrary. It's humbling. <laughs> yeah, the self didn't, you know, need to be center stage anymore. It was just sweet to feel this embrace of the whole universe. Self-realization is realizing the self. Um, That's what love is, understanding there's just one of us here. Yes. Diana, how can people find out more about you? Uh, I, I presume your book, Opening to Meditation, is on Amazon? Yes, it is. Yeah, and um, you can go on my website. It's dianalang.com. And I also, just in the spirit of this conversation, uh, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meditations on SoundCloud that are free on every subject you can imagine. And we were talking about state change, frequencies change, how do we vibrate to the higher rather than the lower. These are trainings and teachings and meditations kind of all compacted into little 12-minute segments on every subject from anger to fear to uh, loving your body to forgiveness or, you know, all the various subjects of healing, many on healing. And so SoundCloud is a really good resource because there's, I think, 800 meditations on there under just look me up SoundCloud Diana Lang. And I'm on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and all the regular places. But, you know, when in doubt, it's just DianaLang.com and that, a lot of that information is there. You can look more into it. 
you would, I think those meditations though that are on SoundCloud are really useful. There's thousands of people that listen every day to just kind of get into, I call it training wheels to change state, to recognize the difference between love and fear in your own body, in your own vehicle, so that you start to recognize it yourself. And of course, most meditation is silent, right? The final meditation is with yourself and there's no voice or no guidance. But in the beginning, it's very helpful to get that the, the, the frequency, right, of thinking, you know, and knowing or thinking and fear or acceptance and love, compassion and truth. Well, I'm thinking now with the Nike slogan, just do it. <laughs> don't judge yourself. Don't worry about whether you're doing it well enough or uh, whether it's difficult or you'll never be able to learn. That's doesn't matter. Just keep doing it and you'll experience the change and you'll like yourself a whole lot more. And boy, so many problems just fall away. Things that issues we have that we have no idea how to solve there are issues and they just fall away and yeah. uh, it's a practice of love second ray love wisdom i think the universe conspires to support you when you come from love the whole game gets rigged yes one big sugar rock candy mountain <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you still have to sit with the suffering. And and that and, and that gets very interesting because as, as joyfully as we we're talking about meditation, it is such a tool for when there's pain or when you're confronted with pain or your own pain, physical, mental, emotional, all of it, COVID, right? To be able to stand in that space with that kind of consciousness, you have power. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. We should do another show in a few months on... Uh, grief and loss and pain, physical pain, emotional yes. pain, sitting with that pain, staring it right in the face. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing Alan Watts say, if you meet a ghost on the trail, give him a hug. You know, <laughs> uh, it's just your brain, your brain, your soul trying to get your attention. So don't run away from that stuff. Move into it. Uh, you'll be greatly rewarded. Can we do that? Would you like to do that yeah, later? I'd love to do that. <laughs> My favorite subject. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. No need to be frightened of fear. Right. That's, uh, that's, uh, I never plug my book, but that's my book, Fearless Intelligence. We can, we can learn to be fearless, to, to use fear as a guide, to find the, you know, the treasure's always hidden behind the, the scary witch or the dragon or the, uh, the, the demons that represent our worst fears of who we are and uh, what we're not capable of. But uh, I think Joseph Campbell said, the treasure you seek is in the cave you least wish to enter. Exactly. The gift is in the wound. Yeah. What came to me was the best parts of you were hidden where you're most afraid to look. And it's so true. So let's let's revisit this, and uh, we'll light up some shadows. How about that? <laughs> Guru. <laughs> Diana Lang, my guest, you're listening. Oh, and again, the book is Opening to Meditation, available wherever fine books are sold. 
And uh, stay with us. We have a few more minutes, and uh, I have a few comments I want to make about this program and some other business. And to remind you, you're listening to the one and only KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and we'll be right back in a minute. We're back. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Hope you make it a plan to join us every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. And I've got two heartfelt requests for you. I've just got a couple of minutes left here. Number one, I want you to begin to meditate. I want you to promise yourself that you're going to begin a regular meditation practice. I don't care if it's three minutes a day. It does not matter if you think you do it poorly. Or a voice in your head says, this is stupid, this is a waste of time, you're not doing it very well, what's the point? That's the ego arguing against the practice because the ego knows that in time you'll discover that while we have an ego nature and in truly dangerous situations even need an ego, we are not that. There is another aspect, a so-called higher self. There is guidance available above us, a still, small voice. And you may know it is intuition or is the aha experience where these brilliant ideas, these epiphanies explode into your brain every once in a while. And they arrive not only as great ideas or solutions to problems, but with a visceral feeling in your body that... This is absolutely right and good and true and, and beautiful. And why didn't you think of this before? Well, it's because the still small voice is often masked by the really negative voices of the ego self. It's the ego that tells you that you're separate, that you're alone, that you're alienated, that you don't fit in. It's the ego voice that tells you that you're not good enough that urges you to compare yourself to other people because you're either inadequate and inferior or you need to be better than. It's the ego voice that drags you into past regrets and resentments or projects you into the fear of the future and prevents you from sitting in the only thing that's real, which is here and now, this present moment. So to access that higher self, you need to study the mind, see how it works. The great thing about learning meditation and practicing meditation is you don't have to sit for 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour or more, as is often said. Two minutes or five minutes may be all you need. And as you heard my guest Diana say today, more times is better than more time. So every day for just a few minutes is much better than once a week for an hour or more, you see. That's true for all learning. So read a book, look on YouTube, listen to these programs and others like it, and begin to practice some form of meditation. There's no wrong way to do it. Don't judge yourself, don't judge others. You'll get by just fine. You have a conscience. You know right from wrong. You'll do just fine without deciding that everything has to be either good or bad, right or wrong, 
with you or against you. And secondly, support what supports you. Make a contribution, a donation regularly to KPFK. Now, I suggest you go to kpfk.org slash donate and look for the sustainer's circle. Set this up once and forget it. You can have 10 or $25 or more drawn directly out of your bank account once a month. And when it's time to do your federal and state income taxes, you'll have this nice charitable contribution that you can deduct. But it's so painless when you do it this way, and there's nothing to remember. And then you don't have to dig deep once a year. And when you listen to this radio station and hear appeals for contributions, you'll enjoy this wonderful self-satisfaction of knowing you've already made your contribution and you're currently, month by month, making your contribution. Again, 10 or 25 bucks is really significant. If you've got more, give more. But please realize that more than 90% of our operating funds come from people just like you, from listeners, not from corporate sponsors. That frees us up. I don't have a boot heel on my neck. I don't have someone looking over my shoulder censoring what I say. Free speech requires truth. Truth requires editorial freedom. And that means you have to sponsor this radio station. Otherwise, you're left with what you're left with. And I think it's pretty obvious that's not really serving you. Not when so many of your misinformed and ill-informed neighbors are getting their so-called news from Facebook and social media. So help us out, won't you? Go to kpfk.org slash donate. Search for the Sustainer Circle. If you can give up these premiums and thank you gifts and just say, that's okay, I'm fine, that's even more money that's directed toward keeping this radio station on the air. And we really appreciate that. So thanks very much for listening and tuning in today. We'll be back next week. And remember, this show is podcast on all platforms a few hours after it airs on the radio station. And you can also listen to the stream on demand or download it from the website theagelesswisdom.com. More information about me is available at michaelbenner.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.